Welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast, the podcast focused on helping civil engineering professionals succeed by exposing them to interesting civil engineering projects and successful civil engineering professionals around the world. Hosts Anthony Fasano and Christian Knutson had successful but unconventional civil engineering careers and now focus on helping civil engineering professionals achieve their goals in work and life. Welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Fasano, and this is the podcast specifically for civil engineers who want to succeed. In today's episode, I'm going to be interviewing Daniel Bigman on ground-penetrating radar. I'm excited about this episode because I worked on a project as a civil engineer with ground-penetrating radar, and to this day, I still don't fully understand it, and that was some time ago. And so I found Daniel on LinkedIn. He was putting out some great information, and I reached out to him to ask him if he'd come on the show and really talk about all the different aspects of ground-penetrating radar. And I've also got questions from our listeners on technical issues and items that I also asked him in the end segment of the show. And I do want to say that this is in no way a sponsored episode. So even though he has a company that teaches people about GPR, I sought him out because of his expertise and I brought him on the show. And I think what we've put together here is a pretty comprehensive show that can help you as a civil engineer understand this tool, which could be very valuable to you, your company, your projects, your clients, and so on. Before we get into the interview with Daniel, I want to take a moment to recognize our sponsor for today's episode, PPI. If you're thinking about taking the civil FE or PE exam, I recommend that you check out PPI, the leader in civil engineering exam prep. PPI is offering a special 20% discount to listeners of this podcast. Use promo code civil at ppi2pass.com. Again, that's PPI, the number two, pass.com, and use promo code civil for a 20% discount. I also want to mention one other quick announcement. We had John Lowe, PE, on our show recently on the Civil Engineering Podcast to talk about his book, A Guide to Managing Engineering and Architectural Design Services Contracts. And I have to be honest with you, as a young civil engineer, I was thrown into a bunch of intricate but exciting projects, but I was never really taught about contract language. And that really hurt my career as a civil engineer. I could never really fully engage in discussions around contract language. I wasn't sure if we were at liability for certain things on a project in a contract, and it really bothered me ever since. So after I did that interview with John Lowe, I asked him if I could help him publish the audiobook of his book, and we did it. It's now available. You can get the audiobook at contractsbook.com. Again, that's contractsbook.com. And the audiobook is going to take you probably less than two hours to listen to it, and you can get a whole bunch of information about contracts, contract terminology that can really, really give you an advantage as a civil engineer. Once again, the name of the book is A Guide to Managing Engineering and Architectural Design Services Contracts. Now I'd like to introduce our guest for today's civil engineering conversation, just so you get to know him a little bit better before we dive into the conversation. Dr. Daniel Bigman received his PhD from the University of Georgia and is an expert in non-invasive subsurface mapping and 3D imaging. His graduate research focused on the application of near-surface geophysics to archaeological and historical context and has since taught at several universities in Georgia. He's collaborated with scholars across the southeastern United States on innovative research pertaining to applied geophysics and damage prevention, especially as it relates to the protection of cultural resources. The results of these projects have been published in peer-reviewed academic journals of international reputation. 
Daniel's also the founder of LearnGPR.com, which is the most comprehensive, fun, and accessible ground-penetrating radar training on Earth. They have put together programs to help civil engineers, structural engineers, geotechnical engineers, utility locators, concrete scanners, archaeologists, and environmental professionals learn this critical technology to grow their business, develop their skills, and protect their resources. And remember, after the main segment, I come back and I ask Daniel a bunch of technical questions about GPR that I collected through LinkedIn, also from listener questions. So stick around for the entire episode to really get a comprehensive look at this really exciting technology. All right, let's jump into our civil engineering conversation. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. All right, now it's time for our civil engineering conversation. Today's guest is Daniel Bigman, the founder of LearnGPR.com. Daniel, welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. So today we're talking about ground-penetrating radar. We'll be referring to it as GPR throughout our conversation here. And Daniel, I gave the listeners a little bit of background about yourself and kind of your experience, but why don't you talk a little bit about your background with regards to GPR before we jump into some of the benefits of using it? Sure. So I've been using it for over 10 years, and I've been using it in a variety of different industries and on sort of varied projects. I've used it in archaeology. I've used it in forensic investigations. I've used it in civil engineering and utility locating, so subsurface utility uh, engineering for sure is quite a bit of it. And so I've had a ton of experience. I've carried out projects all across the U.S., you know, from California all the way to Georgia. And so I've worked on a lot of different kinds of site conditions. And my background, you know, having a graduate degree that really focused on using GPR and other near-surface geophysics techniques has helped me help other people. So the reason that I kind of started LearnGPR.com was that I had found so many people had reached out to me who had been using the technology. They wanted, you know, training on the technology, but struggled to find it. And so I kind of felt that having been a teacher for a while and having formal background, I wanted to kind of give back to the community. And so I, you know, decided to basically build LearnGPR.com in order to help people develop themselves. You know, it's such an important technology. I have found it to be one of the most dynamic subsurface imaging technologies that's available. And there's quite a few of them. And I'm sure in this conversation, we're going to go through a number of other ones and, and how they compare to GPR, but it's very dynamic. The issue can be sometimes because it's so dynamic, it's tough to use or kind of doesn't work on every single project, you know, circumstance or, or site conditions. And so people were struggling and having taught at the university level for four years in Georgia, you know, I wanted to kind of keep that going for myself a little bit selfishly too. I love the teaching, and so I want to, to keep that going. So that's kind of been my experience, just 10 years, you know, projects all over the place, different conditions. And I think one of the benefits that I've had is being able to work on so many different kinds of conditions. I've seen a lot of ugly data, <laughs> you know, I've seen a lot of data. And so when people kind of get ugly data, I think they get concerned, you know, are they not doing it right? Is it their fault? Does the technology really work? I think I had to go through a whole lot of ugly data first before I can sort of begin to walk people through what their options are with ugly data. Nobody likes to talk about it, but the truth is it's usually at least 50% of the time, you know, the data look ugly or, or they're tough to interpret. And so that's kind of been my background with it. And I'm currently on the board of the Environmental and Engineering Geophysics Society, and I'm an associate editor for their near-surface geophysics magazine. And so I've got to interact with a lot of people in the industry, both experts and practitioners. And so it's been, it's been a ride for sure. That's great. It sounds like you've had quite a bit of exposure to it. So on that note, 
lot of our listeners are civil engineers or civil engineering professionals. And for those of them that aren't familiar with GPR, maybe you can just give kind of a definition of what it is, how it works, and then get into some of the benefits and limitations of the technology. So GPR, right, ground penetrating radar, which you already said, but I'm going to state it again just because of, of a definition. It's easy to understand it. Basically, is a non-invasive imaging technology. And what that means is you can create a three-dimensional image of the subsurface or of some sort of surface with this technology prior to or in lieu of excavation. A lot of times this technology then is used to help either guide excavations or to preserve infrastructure to sort of help not hit some sort of utility or rebar or archaeological site, you know, something that's culturally significant that might be near a construction site. So the way that it works then, right, how do you image the subsurface, right? How do you actually image the subsurface without excavating is kind of really the question. So the way that this technology works is it produces an electromagnetic pulse, right, which is a, an, an electromagnetic radio wave that gets pushed into the ground. Okay, we're going to use the ground for these for argument's sake. So it gets pushed into the ground. Radio waves travel at a very certain speed in any given material. And the benefit of GPR is that as a wave changes its speed, meaning that it transfers from one material into another material, some of the energy you know, from that wave reflects off of that interface. And when it reflects, it can be recorded then both the two-way travel time and the amplitude of the reflection back at the ground surface, right? So basically it uses an antenna that is pulled across the ground surface. The antenna produces a radio wave that enters into the subsurface, moves through the subsurface, and whenever it encounters some sort of discontinuity in the subsurface, it'll reflect some or all of the energy back, depending on how different those two materials are. You know, so if there's a little bit of a difference between the materials, then a little bit of the energy will be reflected back. If there's a dramatic difference between the two materials, then most or all of the energy will be reflected back to the surface. So if you understand that kind of right in one dimension, if you're literally standing on the ground, you have your antenna, you put the pulse into the ground, and you can see what it's reflecting off of, and you understand it's two-way travel time, then you can make a determination on how deep that transition zone is. The neat thing about GPR, I think what makes it so powerful, or one of the benefits, like you said, what are the benefits? One of the benefits is you can use it then to create a three-dimensional map of the subsurface. So if you put the wave into the ground and you push it along a transect, right, that's going to give you a profile into the subsurface of what it looks like. As if you made an excavation trench and you were looking at the side wall of that excavation trench, that's a 2D profile. But if you generate a bunch of 2D profiles next to each other, then you can resample your data and actually peel away the surface 10 centimeters below the surface, 20 centimeters below the surface, 30 centimeters below the surface, and actually get a map into the ground of the distribution of these discontinuities. And they may be geological, they may be infrastructure, they may be biological. A lot of times you gotta be careful of bioturbation and things like that because they can mask like an actual target that you're looking for, but they're not. So what it'll do is create a three-dimensional map into the ground surface. So that's what I think one of the major benefits are. Absolutely, that sounds like a benefit. And I'm assuming, I mean, it's non-invasive, which is a benefit, and I'm assuming that it's also can be done relatively quickly as opposed to having to dig. Absolutely, right. So you definitely save time in carrying out a GPR survey compared to going with, I think, full-fledged kind of like borehole investigation. Digging certainly takes a lot of time. It's destructive. 
And certainly, you know, as far as safety concerns, you know, go, GPR is much safer than excavating out. So there's a number of benefits for sure. And then it is pretty quick as far as data collection. It does have limitations. And, and I think you bring up one of these important limitations, which is that really you're interpreting what the reflection events are. That's what you're doing. You're interpreting what the reflection events are. And so it's difficult, although you can be very confident in your interpretations, you really can't say for sure unless you get verification through some sort of digging or excavation. And so pairing GPR with verification scheme, like a borehole or an excavation trench, but using that in order to interpret a much larger GPR data set, I think is sort of the way to get the best results. Because once you get some information on what rock is actually there below the surface or what the soil stratigraphy is like, or is this target that we're seeing a reflection off of actually the utility we're looking for, great. All you need to do is verify that once. And then with the GPR, you can trace it as long as you want. And so kind of pairing the two of them together, I think, produces the most successful projects. But what it allows you to do is limit time in excavation, limit money, because excavation, boreholing, uh, coring are more expensive techniques than GPR is. And so you can save time, save money, get a much larger data set that's a much greater resolution. You put your GPR across the ground surface, even if you're doing a single line, you're getting readings every two centimeters or every four or five centimeters, depending on how you calibrate your instrument. But that's a tremendous resolution, right? I mean, nobody goes every five centimeters with a borehole. So the, the data points you get, so it's a really small sample size when you, get, when you do boreholding. But with GPR, it's a very robust sample size. So that's another benefit. But one of the limitations is certainly that it can't really tell you what's under there, you know, without full verification, right? Without some sort of verification. So it is interpretation, but that interpretation comes with doing background research, you know, on your site, understanding the local geology, understanding what's supposed to be underneath the ground can take you really far in creating those interpretations that are, you know, with high confidence, even before you begin to excavate anything out. So what you're saying, basically, what it sounds like is that the, probably the best approach is as opposed to having... Obviously, someone could go with an approach where they do 50 boreholes over a site and no GPR, or you can come in now and do GPR, which is less invasive, quicker, and then maybe do a couple of boreholes or a series of a couple of boreholes throughout a fraction of 50 to just do some verification and to help you piece everything together. Correct. Right. So you can, instead of doing 50, right, you could do five, which is one tenth of the amount of boreholes, but you actually have a much more robust data set because what you can do, instead of drawing lines from borehole to borehole, you know, as far as trying to create, all right, well, what does the bedrock actually look like here? And if you have boreholes that are 20, 30, 40 meters apart, there's a lot of variation you're probably missing. If you can do a few of them and make sure that the depths are correct, right, verify depths, verify the actual rock that would help, you know, calculating ripability and what the costs are going to be to actually excavate out rock if you're, you know, kind of during pre-planning stages. But then you can say, all right, well, now we're going to have data every meter with the GPR and every meter, you know, or, or five meters or whatever the case may be, but two meter sampling scale along our transect is going to give you a tremendous amount of more information as far as actual depths in any given area of bedrock across the site. One of the problems with GPR, and this is something that a lot of people, you know, question on, is not every site, you know, is built the same or is equal for GPR work. And so one of the biggest drawbacks of GPR are site conditions. And so the two most difficult site conditions to work in or the two most difficult soil contexts to work in are wet clay and saltwater or brackish conditions. The reason is that they have a very high what's called dielectric constant 
or very high relative dielectric permittivity, if there's anybody who's really technical listening in. Sure. No, that was actually one of the questions we got from the, one of the LinkedIn groups was the brackish water and clay soil. So you already addressed them. Yeah, definitely. And so both of those conditions can make it difficult to collect GPR data. However, they're not impossible to use GPR. And I think part of the issue that I think some people come across is they want it to be really clean and they want it to be really nice. Like I said, a lot of times there are ugly data sets, but even ugly data can give you really good information on a site without having a good background on how GPR works and what the best antenna frequencies are to use on any given site, you're going to be limited in your capabilities for conducting a successful survey. A lot of people purchase like a single antenna, so we didn't even go into this, but GPR runs on antenna frequencies and each different antenna frequency is going to allow you to prospect deeper into the subsurface or more shallow into the subsurface. A lot of folks end up buying a single instrument with a single frequency and that's what they use. And if that instrument or that frequency works on a site, great, it was successful. If it doesn't work on a site, it was unsuccessful. As opposed to understanding how to change in and out antenna frequencies for maximum success rates. Even though these conditions are difficult to work in, you can absolutely adjust your antenna frequencies right, by using a different antenna. You can adjust the parameters and calibration variables on your instrument to try to give you the best chance possible on these difficult sites. And then understanding what other signatures are there that you can potentially get information from that might not be what you're looking for. And I'll give you an example, right? So a lot of times with utility locating, which is probably the most popular use of ground penetrating radar for civil engineering would be utility locating. A lot of times folks where I live, it's clay content. It's bad soils. Okay. Where I live is bad soils. People I talk to all the time tell me that their GPR doesn't work. And they say, we bought this $25,000 piece of equipment and it doesn't work. And I say, well, that's weird because I use it every week, let's say, you know, every single week, and I get data that has information in it, even though we're working in the same soil. So explain that to me. And the reason is that a lot of times people don't actually have the proper background to understand that they can look for other signatures, even if it's not their ideal signature. So if you're looking for a pipe that's buried below the surface, and let's say where I work, the antenna that somebody's using might, in ideal conditions, see 12 or 15 feet. Their pipe is six feet. They expect they'll be able to see it, but because they're working in clay, their signal is attenuating, right? It's just being eaten up, sucked out of the soil three to four feet. So they're not getting down to the depth of their pipe at six feet. And they're confused, right? Why is it happening? And, and say, all right, well, soil, clay soils you can't work in. If they were able to do some very basic processing steps to their data and clean up their ugly data a little bit, they might be able to see a completely different signature, which would still let them know where the pipe is. And so you can identify disturbed soil, right? So when you have a trench, you generally have disturbed soil. And if you can identify disturbed soil, you can likely identify where your target is, right? Where your pipe is, even though you're not seeing a reflection off the pipe. So there are workarounds to try to maximize success. Now, I'm not taking away from clay being poor conditions. I mean, there, it's, it can de definitely be frustrating working in clay context, but it doesn't mean put your GPR away. It means take it out, use it, adjust it, use it, adjust it again, and use it to try to do your best to create a successful survey. I just wanted to let everyone know that we are going to link to Daniel's website, learngpr.com, which is going to have a lot of technical stuff on it. Daniel, talk about one thing that's important is cost. You mentioned it before. How does GPR get priced? Like if you're going to hire someone to do it as a civil engineering firm, can you expect the price? Is it per thousand feet, per square footage? What is in general, what have you seen? So there's actually a, a pretty significant range of pricing 
for different kinds of projects, people will price it differently. I'm not going to go too deep into it, but I'm going to give you kind of a general, if you're trying to hire somebody out to conduct GPR work, there's a couple ways that people price their services, or at least two main ways. So they'll either do it on like an hourly or daily rate, or they'll do it on a, an area rate. And so typically in things like concrete scanning, where you have very small areas you might be searching, like a two foot by two foot area, people I've seen work on hourly rates, unless it's a bigger project, right? So if you're going to have to do 40 of those little guys, then you might have like a daily rate or something like that. But in those cases, people generally work on hourly rates. And I've seen ranges from between 100 bucks an hour up to 350 an hour in hiring for that kind of work. If you're looking at ground survey, let's say, utility locating or whatever, sometimes people do daily rates or half-day rates. I've seen also in those cases, I've seen ranges from about $750 a day at the very low end to $2,500 a day at the higher end. When you begin to look at area rates, and with consulting, I generally go with area because really I think as an expert, you're providing a value to a project. And, and so you understand that there are a bunch of complexities within there, but if you've done this enough times, you kind of know what to expect and you can plan out what your time is going to be based on the value that you're going to provide. So for areas I've seen for an acre, I've seen people as low as about $2,000 up to $5,000 for an acre. And that would be like included with a report and things like that. That's kind of the range that I've seen, but I'll make one qualification to this. I would be a little skeptical, you know, of people who are super, super low in their pricing. And the reason is I've seen time and time again, if you put out costs for somebody who's charging $750 a day, which even might sound expensive to some people for GPR work, I would definitely budget in additional money to deal with your hits when you hit a utility or you hit a rebar or something like that, a reinforcement, budget in additional money for that. Because generally I've seen that the lower the pricing is, the more times you get hits even after somebody had surveyed. I've seen that when people are at the higher end, they're at the higher end for a reason. And they're at the higher end because they have background, they have expertise, they've been doing this for a long time, they've seen a bunch of different examples, you know, they've worked on many different kinds of sites and they charge a premium, but you're much less likely to have to budget in for hitting some sort of infrastructure on your project or having completely poor information on depths of bedrock and things like that. So there is a range, but I have seen more times that people come in at lower prices that after they've done their survey, utilities, rebar, and other things like that end up getting hit. And that's just what I've seen. And so to give advice who are actually looking to hire somebody out, for sure, there's a pretty dramatic range. And I put that out there because I know people at both ends of the spectrum. And some people I know should be charging more than they charge because they're really good. But I don't know, they're scared of saying I'm cost $2,500 a day, I guess. And there are some people who charge $2,500 a day who should be at the much lower spectrum because they really don't have that kind of background. And so that happens on a general scale. I've seen people at the higher end have performed better on the projects that I have seen. $2,500 a day, I think, is the high end that people generally charge for GPR services, but you generally get very good work. Yeah, it's a good kind of frame for the listeners. If you're thinking about maybe using this on a project, obviously, Daniel's giving some rough pricing here. You'll reach out and get some quotes, but it's good just to have an idea. If you're talking to clients, if a client asks you, you want to have a little bit of an understanding. And in the next segment, in the end segment of the episode today, I'm going to ask Daniel some more technical questions that we received through LinkedIn group discussions. And so we'll get back to some of those other items like the brackish, water, et cetera. 
But a couple more questions just on GPR in general in the industry. Daniel, what have you seen as far as popularity and the current state of use of GPR in civil engineering in general? The role of GPR is definitely expanding. And I think there's actually a, a very neat segue from talking about pricing into talking about the role of GPR in civil engineering. Because when you talk about GPR in civil engineering, it's not just civil engineers that actually use GPR. I use civil engineers, and you can fight with me on this because you are a civil engineer and I'm not a civil engineer, right? I'm a GPR expert. But for me, when I think of civil engineering, I think of a pretty large scope, right? So for me, I think structural engineering, I think geotechnical engineering, and I think civil engineering somewhat comes under, and others, you know, transportation engineering, somewhat comes under civil engineering for me. Again, I, I might offend people on the podcast, and I really apologize if I offended anybody. I think a lot of those that you mentioned is they fall under an umbrella of civil engineering in some regard, in some way. I would agree that all of projects in those different realms would be considered kind of GPR and civil engineering. You got to have two other people on a future podcast to debate whether or not technical is or is not civil engineering. You probably get a good heated episode. Right. So that's kind of how I view it. And so I think the role then, right, within civil engineering is the recognition that not all civil engineers, including all of what I just stated, you know, not all GPR projects are carried out by civil engineers. So when people are hiring out somebody to do GPR, sometimes they're hiring out a GPR expert, okay? And sometimes they're hiring out a contractor who is not necessarily a GPR expert, but fills the role of conducting the GPR survey anyway. You're getting utility locators that are now using GPR. So the, it's growing in popularity tremendously. I was actually speaking to a very close group of, of people, distributors here in the Southeast. They said that 10 years ago, when they started selling GPR, primarily to the utility locating and industry, and that includes municipalities and civil engineers too, they sold six GPR in their first year. In the Southeast is their region. Last year, they sold 60. This year, okay, for 2016, they're looking to break 100 GPR sales. They're like dumbfounded right, at, at how fast it's growing. So that's just to give some kind of numbers, at least for, you know, this, for my N of one, okay, case study, but that's what it is. And so it clearly is gaining significant popularity, even compared to a decade ago. So it's growing. And what you're getting are more and more people using GPR who are not actually civil engineers or technically GPR experts. And I'm not saying they shouldn't use it. I think GPR should be used on as many projects as it possibly can because it adds benefits, right? Regardless, I just think everybody should be trained up properly. Again, that's right. So I started this company to help people, but that's under the recognition that there is a wide variety of people using this now. Let me get into kind of the crux of it then. Well, what's the answer? What's the role of it then in civil engineering? And I'll kind of take it at this way. What's the role of it for civil engineers as opposed to civil engineering? because a lot of people now are using it who are not technically civil engineers. And I think that then the role for civil engineers is really to be the expert in GPR. And what that means is providing much deeper analysis of GPR data and offering additional layers of information for projects that GPR can offer that other folks are not able to offer because they don't have that kind of background. And civil engineers don't need to carry out every project. If it's a really simple, I'm just looking at a wire, a rebar mesh in concrete, there's nothing else in there. Somebody who has very, very basic training on it and no engineering background can obviously do that very well with, with high rates of accuracy. When you start asking other questions, right? So take structural engineering, like for example, well, what's the diameter of the rebar, right? If there's no information on it, can GPR be used for that? There is debatable, but certainly 
it's moving towards that direction. And within the next five or 10 years, it's going to come out. We're going to have more developments where you can identify rebar diameters with high accuracy. Within one rebar size, I mean, within millimeters of a size of a rebar, that's going to be possible, right? I mean, it's really possible now people have done it in experimental case studies, but so that's coming. So who's going to do that? The folks who are doing really simple work, I don't think are going to be able to do that, right? And there's going to be this divide, at least the way I see it, there's going to be a divide. And people who can, who are doing very simple utility locating are going to provide utility locating services, right? With GPR and they're going to get better. But when folks need on projects to map bedrock, right? To map rippability of rock, to evaluate a variety of other kinds of things on a construction site, let's say, they're going to have to look towards the engineers. And I think that that's where the divide is going to be. And I think the role then of GPR then for civil engineers is become the experts, be able to do a variety of different applications. You know better, and, and your listeners probably know better than this, but a lot of civil engineering firms, at least that I have seen, offer a variety of different services. And you can use GPR then on a variety of different services, whether it's forensics engineering, whether it's using it to evaluate bridge decks, whether it's using it to evaluate geology, whether it's using it to do utility locating. People who have a GPR on their truck can't do all that. Civil engineers can. You have technical background, you have scientific engineering background, you have mathematics background, and the ability to do those kinds of projects are going to fall under civil engineers, not Joe with the GPR who's doing a very basic kind of locate. Again, nothing wrong with Joe, but he can do that stuff and he can do it day in and day out, but it's going to leave a whole lot of other potential projects or a whole lot of other services, I think, that can be offered by civil engineers on the table. And I think a lot of civil engineers now are falling into the category of, well, we're also Joe and do utility locating, even though they have projects 10 times the amount of projects that they probably could use a GPR on, and they're probably leaving money on the table. And to get to that expert status, right, to be able to use it on more projects, they probably don't need all that much additional training. A little bit more training for them will probably go a very long way. And that's where I think the role is going to be for civil engineers in using GPR, is they're going to become the experts. And there's going to be simple projects. It's going to be the contractor who can do it. But for complicated projects or deeper understanding of what's going on, it's going to fall to civil engineers. So I would encourage civil engineers, structural engineers, geotechnical engineers to get on board now and begin to use this now and begin to experiment on projects now so you can really kind of solidify your position as an expert in the GPR space. Yeah, it's really interesting because the more that we talk, I realize that there's more layers to this than I originally thought. I mean, I've done a civil engineering project as the civil engineer where we hired someone to do a GPR analysis and used it for a streetscape project. And that's how I was envisioning GPR for a lot of civil firms. And it probably goes that way. Like you said, they hire someone, they come in, they do it for a day or two, they give you the data, and then you're left with the data and you can use it as is. You might have to do some more interpretation. Based on our discussion here, what I'm realizing is that there's also the possibility of you having GPR as a service or having it in-house and being able to use it across different disciplines in much more detail and getting the benefits in that way. So I think if you're listening, this can be a real big opportunity for you individually as an engineer to become an expert in this and take it to your firm and build it up as a service or as a department or as a way to optimize your other projects can also be a way for your firm to stand out, take the lead on this, So, which is exciting. I mean, we talked about in our last episode, we talked about drones as a similar type of thing where civil engineering companies are starting to get involved with drones and you have an opportunity to become an expert. 
And these are the kind of things that I think can separate you in the field when you get expertise around one of these technologies that comes out. And we're going to get into some questions, like I said, in this end segment coming up in a minute here on technical stuff and also some of the different technologies that maybe you can stack this up against. But before we do that, Daniel, before we transition into the end segment, one last question that I have is based on all this, if you are going to be getting work from Joe out there to do some couple of days for you and give you data, or if you're going to go see quotes for GPR work for one of your projects, or if you're going to start building it in-house, how can firms get started with education around GPR? I'm sure that there's mistakes that could happen. They might run into common problems that you've seen. Where do they start? I mean, I really think the easiest way to start, and I'm not just saying this because this is my site, but literally the easiest way to start is to go to learngpr.com. And what we have over there are even free training videos that people can use. Like I put out a free training video, at least one every single week. A lot of it is geared towards civil engineers. And I think what it helps people do is wrap their head around what's possible. And then also with getting some very basic education, it allows people to understand what the real opportunities are. Because even like you said, without bringing it in-house, even if you're hiring out, people are missing opportunities, right? I mean, if you don't even know that GPR can offer a solution to a problem that's on your project, you can't offer it as a service to your customer, whether you're actually conducting it yourself or you're hiring somebody else out. If you can't identify the opportunities, it's money on the table that you're leaving on the table. The first step I always say is learn some of the very fundamentals, right? I mean, I, even I spoke about it in the beginning of the podcast, things like EM wave behavior, I mean, it's super basic that people have to know and understand before they really can go out and even talk about GPR in an intelligent way to customers, right? Understanding physical properties and how that plays a role in the performance of GPR, whether you're carrying it out or somebody else without understanding, a, you know, having a deeper understanding of how physical properties of soils or materials, including concrete and asphalt and all that and other materials will have an effect on the performance. You can't go and offer it, yeah, it's going to be a likelihood of success or it's going to be a minimal likelihood of success, but we can still try and potentially come out with these outcomes. Getting some very, very basic understanding is first. LearnGPR.com is one way to do it. We actually do have a report that is out there. If you go to LearnGPR.com forward slash civil, it's a very popular report of ours. It's basically a list of different ways that GPR can be used in uh, civil engineering. And uh, definitely a few of them are things that people haven't thought about before. The very basics, I think, is one way, and, and our site and our trainings is one way to do that. However, a lot of good manufacturers out there offer training also. And so one of the most popular ways that people get trained is after they purchase a piece of equipment, they'll immediately go do, and if you don't, you should, immediately go do a training with the manufacturer because they'll do like a two or three day intensive on the equipment itself. So to really maximize that then, you would need to go back and get some very basic understanding of the technology, not just the equipment. Manufacturers offer trainings. And then um, one final way that people can begin to engage with good quality training is a lot of times there'll be some workshops, half-day workshops or full-day workshops at conferences. Like I know that World of Concrete, for example, is doing like a, a one-day workshop, I think, on that's sponsored by a couple different manufacturers who produce concrete scanning equipment. I encourage people to take those courses, even if you're not conducting it now, on your own, or even if you haven't even started to hire people out, without getting exposure to GPR, what it's capable of, what data even look like, how you would go about interpreting data, I think that's where you need to start, right? The basics, the basics, the basics are where I would encourage people to begin. Great. Makes sense. Get educated on it. And that's going to help you, of course, to be more knowledgeable about it. 
All right, so Daniel's going to stick around, and we're going to jump into our end segment here to close it out and kind of give him some uh, rapid-fire questions from different listeners and LinkedIn groups discussions that we picked up. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. All right, now it's time for our Civil Engineering Hot Seat segment in which today's episode is brought to you by our sponsor, PPI. Engineers often ask me what exam prep materials or review courses they should use when preparing for the FE or PE exam. Hands down, I recommend PPI. I personally use PPI's materials to pass my exams, and I recently had a chance to demo their civil FE and PE review courses. It's why I feel confident recommending PPI for those of you planning to take the next step in your career. PPI is offering a special 20% discount to listeners of this podcast. Use promo code CIVIL at ppi2pass.com. Again, that's PPI, the number two, pass.com, and use promo code CIVIL for a 20% discount. I also want to, again, just remind you to check out John Lowe's audio book that we just published, A Guide to Managing Engineering and Architectural Design Services Contracts. You can find it at contractsbook.com, and I think you're really going to find it as a helpful guide and resource to help you bolster your knowledge around contracts as a civil engineer. Usually in our hot seat segment, we fire off some rapid fire questions around professional development for our guests. But in this episode, we collected so many technical questions, especially through LinkedIn groups, and we'll link to the LinkedIn discussion so everyone gets credit for their question. But we're going to spend the entire segment on the technical questions. All right, we're back with Daniel Bigman from LearnGPR.com. Daniel, you ready for some of these uh, rapid fire questions from listeners? Absolutely. I'm ready for them. First one, for confirming utility mains and house connections in a street, is it effective to use GPR parallel to the curb line or should you run perpendicular as well? So in any circumstance where you're trying to locate a target and you know the expected orientation of the target, you should generally try to hit it, try to hit your target perpendicular. So if you're coming in from the street, the anticipation is that it's going towards the house. And by running parallel to the street, you're going to be going at a perpendicular angle to your target. This way you can hit your target multiple times. That's the quick, quick, quick answer. But the second part of it, just really quick, is if you can do both, you will get a much higher resolution of your target. And so if you can go both parallel and then perpendicular and integrate all of that data into a single three-dimensional view of the ground surface, you're going to have a much, much, much more accurate understanding of where the pipe or utility actually is. But a lot of times people are struggled for time. And so if they have to go one direction, I would say if you have to go one direction, try to go perpendicular to your target, which in this case is probably parallel to the street. But if you can go both directions, then you're going to have better data. All right, next one was, what are some other methodologies that might be potentially used in place of or are comparable to GPR? Well, it's going to depend on what kind of project it is, right? So I'll, I'll quickly rapid fire through three different kinds of projects and give you an, a complementary, I think, if not alternative to GPR. So for utility locating, by far the most popular technique is using uh, EM locators. So the benefits with EM Locator are they're even faster to collect data or to map the ground surface or your utility than GPR is. If you can hook into like a tracer wire, then you can distinguish between different services, utility services. And that's something that GPR struggles with, although GPR can give you information on the material that whatever your target is, is made out of. It struggles a little bit to distinguish accurately between services. So an EM Locator is definitely number one for utility locating as a complement to GPR. 
if you're trying to do something like evaluate water table depth on like an excavation project or geotechnical project, then something else you can use would be like electric resistance or earth resistance is what it's called sometimes, or earth resistance tomography. So what this does is it basically uses two current probes, right? Current as in it puts a current into the ground and it works on the principle that when you put a current into the ground, that the ground is basically your resistor. As the electricity goes through the ground, back up into your second probe, it goes out of one probe into the second probe. It has to complete this loop, right? I mean, all electricity complete the loop. So what it does is it takes two other probes and evaluates the voltage just below the ground surface. If there's water, for example, pulling the electricity down, right, because it's going to attract it, you'll have a lower resistance. And if it's something that's bedrock, that's pushing, that's even more resistive, maybe it's air-filled or something like that. If you have something that's air-filled, like a trench, actually, for example, it might push the electricity towards the surface. It's going to give you some variation. So something like identifying water table, earth resistance is probably a great complement to GPR, which can also do it. Finally, let's say you're in like some of these bad environments, like a clay environment or a brackish you know, environment, and you're looking for bedrock, but your GPR can't see it. No matter what you do, you can't see it. There is no disturbed soil because it's bedrock. What can you do? Well, you can use another wave-based technique, which is seismic, and it's a much slower process to collect seismic data, but it's not constrained by the same soil property issues that GPR is. It uses mechanical waves instead of electromagnetic waves, and so because it uses mechanical waves, there's no... E in the EM, right, that's going to get sucked out of these electrically charged materials like clay or salt water. And so using seismic can go much deeper, irrelevant of what the soil is, than GPR can. So those are some other complementary techniques for GPR in kind of three different areas. All right. The next question was twofold, and I think one of them you already addressed, but it says, does GPR work in clay soils and does it work in coastal environments with brackish groundwater conditions? You already addressed the clay issue in the first segment, but can you talk a little bit about the brackish groundwater? Sure. It's tough. GPR isn't a magic bullet, I always say. I say it has some issues like anything else. It's one of the best things we have out there, especially for near-surface imaging, but it struggles in brackish environments. It struggles in environments that have high saltwater content, because what salt water does is it basically is highly conductive, and so it really sucks out the energy of the GPR signal. And it just can't hold up its energy for as long as you would like it to in most cases. However, a lot of times, even if you have a high water table, but it's, you might be looking for a utility embedded in the ground, you still might be able to identify some disruption. Sand is difficult sometimes too because it's so, use a really technical term, fluffy, okay? That's super technical. It can be a problem sometimes. It's hard to identify disturbed soils in sand because it's a very disturbed environment in general. So it struggles, but I would say it's always worth using the GPR if you have it and trying to adjust your parameters on your system or adjust the frequency of your antenna that you're using to try to identify a target. But I would say that these brackish environments are definitely the most difficult, but it doesn't mean that you shouldn't try it if you have it on your truck. If you have the tool, it has worked in brackish environments. It's not like it has never worked. I mean, the, it does what it's supposed to do. It's up to you to try to figure out other signatures that you can look for to try to get some information that's going to be helpful. That's the way I can say it. Perfect. Have submersible GPR units been developed? Not to my knowledge, but GPR has been used on water. There is a lot of studies that do like lake bed mapping using GPR. The reason is there's a difference between saltwater and freshwater. 
if you have it basically, let's say, in, in a canoe driving behind a boat that's being pulled by a boat, it's going to hold up its signal in water for some reason, even though they both have high dielectrics. In pure water, in fresh water, it's going to hold up its signal. And so you can actually use it to do lake bed mapping. But you can also, right, for example, use it to do evaluation of bridge footers, for example, right? And so even if they're stuck into the water, you can still tow a GPR, hit the bottom layer of the lake or the river, and then it potentially will hit the top of your footer from your concrete pile or, or whatever the case may be. So it has been used on freshwater. I think the problem with using it in marine environments that are saltwater marine environments are it's going to take the signal out. However, you can use a different kind of wave, right? And so you'll get like uh, sound waves being used instead, right? Sound waves are mechanical waves, don't have the same issue. You can use sound waves instead of using EM waves, which are what GPR produces, to map things that are off the coast. So there's alternatives to GPR for those kinds of things. I have currently not seen a submergible GPR, but I don't see why somebody couldn't create, like they create for the cameras and the phones now, like a plastic airtight, watertight case for it. Any listeners, if you create a case for a GPR and you put on a scuba suit and take that thing to the bottom of a lake, I please send me pictures. Go to learngpr.com, put it in the contact us and send me a picture. I would love to see. I'll put that everywhere. Okay, I can't wait to see somebody do something like that. But to my knowledge, nobody has created something like that yet. But I can imagine it's coming soon. What the exact benefits would be, you know, it's tough to say because you can use it on freshwater, but potentially like you would still get more signal if you're already riding it along a lake bed. But interesting question. All right. Next question. Does GPR work on concrete slabs? A hundred percent. It works on concrete slabs. It's one of the most popular uses of GPR in civil and structural engineering and construction that there is. I would say it's probably used even more in concrete slabs now, maybe not five or 10 years ago, but now it's probably used even more on concrete slabs than even GPR is used for utility locating. It's used on more and more and more projects. And the reason is even concrete drilling companies are now becoming concrete scanning companies and charging for that service. The neat thing about it is not only does it work in concrete slabs, and can you identify rebar, post-tension cables, conduits? You can also now identify delaminations, cracks. You can identify voids below concrete slab or in a concrete slab if there was you know, some sort of blemish or, or whatever, but certainly below concrete slabs. You can identify voids. You can identify corrosion of rebar in concrete and evaluate variation in the corrosive, in the results of the corrosive process throughout a concrete slab. You know, is it worse? How about size of rebar? Size of rebar, you can do that. You can, I did, actually did a video on that on our blog just a couple of weeks ago. It was a very popular video um, that we got a bunch of uh, comments on. It's a little bit of a touchy subject because some people try to do it and they struggle with it. And so in the video, I talk about two different methods to identify rebar diameter. I'm not going to go into detail for them here, but you go to our blog uh, at learngpr.com and look for that video. But you can evaluate rebar size, absolutely. I think the issue now is it hasn't fully been automated yet. And so you have some specialists and experts, right, who are doing it or at least experimenting with it and coming out with some decent results. But I see eventually it's going to be a little bit more automated in either the post-processing software or even right on your console, right, of your instrument. Because both methods are mathematical in their application. And so I think both eventually can be automated to at least give you, again, it's going to give you plus minus. But in the best case study I've seen, I've seen, I've seen four, I've read four different case studies where they try to identify or you know, estimate rebar diameter. 
And the best case study I saw out of the four, all four were different methods. So there's certainly a lot of work being conducted on it. Of the four, the one that had the best results was less than 7% plus minus. So on like a 40 millimeter diameter rebar, they're getting four millimeters or better in inaccuracy, right? I mean, that's it's tremendous. So yes, you can do it. I would say definitely go start with the video. And on our blog, I think actually in one of the comments, I, I put some of the sources for that. So you can go and read the actual case studies. But yes, you can do that. How about when it comes to pavement, the different layers like binder course, wearing, will that show up? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So if there is any variation in the physical properties of materials, there's going to be a reflection of at least some of that energy because any shift in physical properties, at least those that are relevant for GPR, which basically even slight variations in porosity are going to create some sort of variation because air has a tremendous impact on the EM wave. Any variation in the physical properties is going to create a reflection event. It's the job of the GPR expert or the job of the civil engineer to interpret those reflection events. And so if you're getting more subtle reflection events, which you might get if you're going from reasonably coarse to a little bit more coarse, they might only be subtle, but your job then is to say, here's what the reflection is. Here's what its amplitude is. Here's why it's such a small amplitude. Here's what our interpretation is then of what materials below the surface, what its porosities are and things like that. And so you can absolutely create images that show stratigraphic layers, especially in road work. You can see asphalt thicknesses, you know, then you can see gravel thicknesses and you can see uh, soil thicknesses down to bedrock or water table, assuming that your conditions are ideal enough to get that kind of depth and your parameters you put in your instrument are ideal enough or the right ones and your antenna frequency is, is appropriate. But it's definitely something you can do. I will say this before I let you go into another one is rapid fire. Another question. I'm going to put my own question in here is, can it be automatically detected? And the answer is yes. So your layers can now, there have algorithms in the post-processing software that allow you to do automated detection on layering. I have found much better success rates for automated detection of layers than I have for automated detection of things like a pipe. And so layers are probably the best that we're getting now for automation, but it's only a starting process. And the reason I'm putting this in here is I've gotten this question probably 10 times, is automation worthwhile? For looking at layers, it's a great way to start. Start with automation and then sort of work from that backwards to your own interpretations. How about for characterizing the soil bearing capacity? This is an interesting question. So again, I'm going to have to, in this case, you know, let everybody on the podcast. So I am not a structural engineer. Okay. So I got to put that out there as a disclaimer. GPR can give information about variation in soil. Because of density or? Yeah, because of density. This is another great scenario where pairing a GPR survey with some verification. Some boreholes or something, yeah. Yeah, boreholes is going to allow you to get a lot more information to help interpret the GPR data. So once you have an understanding of what is actually down there, then your GPR data set is going to go much further than without it. This is one of those kind of situations where I would say, add some boreholes you know, into this project. Yeah. I mean, listen, I don't think that any licensed engineer is going to bank on 
solely, I mean, let's put it this way. I don't think you should bank solely on ground penetrating radar to determine the soil capacity for something that you're going to design over. But I think that to Daniel's point, if you do some borings and you see the soil, you feel the soil, you analyze the soil, and then you use the GPR for some of the strata, maybe dimensions or depths, then that could be a winning combination. Absolutely. I think you hit the nail you know, right on the head. So engineers, right, probably wouldn't go forward with that. I think there might be some folks who are GPR experts out there who run around claim that you just don't have to excavate anymore. And I know this isn't just in engineering. This is across the board, right? That if you're looking for whatever you're looking for, you just don't have to excavate. I don't think that GPR is a replacement for excavation. I think it's a complement to it. And I think that it can give you a lot greater detail of the subsurface even after you do some excavation. But I think it's a big plus to be able to pare back on the amount of boreholes you do, like you said earlier in the podcast, to save time, money, and increase site safety. But it's limited. And this is definitely, so as somebody who's a quote-unquote GPR expert, I'm saying in this case for load bearing, do some boreholes. I'm pointing out a very important limitation of it. And I think this is certainly one of the cases where boreholes would be a very prudent way to begin the project and then complement those with GPR. We just have like two more quick ones here, but also we did get a bunch of questions on the effect of range uses, limitations of each antenna frequency. I think that's too much to go into detail here on the podcast. I can give like a, like a 30 second answer. Okay, go ahead. Why don't you do that then? Right. So each frequency will, will give a different depth range for any given kind of material. But to give you the absolute dramatic range of these kinds of things is I've seen paired 100 megahertz antenna that go as deep as 150 feet. So that's pretty deep. Then I've also seen very high frequency antenna, right? So 100 megahertz, maybe 150 feet in ideal conditions. That was two different ones. It was an offset antenna. And if you're technical, you know what I mean. On the other scale, I've seen a 2.6 gigahertz antenna, right? So 2,600 megahertz. So that's a high frequency go less than 12 inches, right? Maybe eight inches to get really high resolution of what's below in a concrete slab. So that's the range. Right? So the effective range for GPR, depending on frequency, is going to be that range. Something that's in the middle, like a 400 megahertz antenna or 500 megahertz antenna, is going to go between three and five meters in ideal conditions. So that's the very, very general range. Again, if you go to our site, I do teach on this, where I go into much more detail about what antenna does what kind of depth and is appropriate for what kind of application. But that's like the kind of quick and, and dirty range. Okay, great. And I guess this is another question, but probably you just answered it to some degree is what is the range of depth? And I guess it's the ranges based on what you just said with the antennas, right? With the antennas and the physical properties of the soil, right? So a 100 megahertz antenna is going to be ideal in one circumstance in dry sand, for example, is going to have a much different effective depth in clay. So I'll give you some of my experiences. So with a single 100 megahertz antenna, for example, in beautiful sunny Florida, sandy soils, I had a single antenna go down probably 12 meters, which is pretty close to its maximum for a single antenna, not offset. So that's, that's one example. But then in, in Georgia, where it's, it was just red Georgia clay is pretty poor soils. I was able to see two to three meters, which was enough for my project. With higher antenna frequencies, you know, I couldn't see what I wanted, but I brought in a 100 megahertz antenna. Same antenna, different context. It only went about two to three meters in depth versus 12 meters to 15 meters in sandy soils in, in Florida. Physical properties are going to determine in a big way what your frequency is. And this person's also asking, I'm assuming the answer here is yes, but wants to know if it can 
can pick up desiccation cracks, which I believe are cracks in the soil. And I believe if they create any kind of void, it might, there just should be something that would show up. I mean, obviously everything's up, up in the air, but right. I mean, potentially. I mean, voids will produce a very clear signature almost under any circumstance. The two biggest dramatic differences you know, in material, right? The polar opposites are air and water. And so if you're moving through soil and you hit an air pocket, if you hit a crack, if you, you know, whether it's geological and you're going to hit some sort of crack or fracture, that can show up in GPR. And then right down to if you have crack because of an expansion in the concrete because of corrosive rebar is expanding and that creates a delamination, even at that small scale, you can still see that crack. Concrete's much more similar to air as far as its physical properties that matter for GPR compared to like clay. It'll be a more dramatic signature if the air is, you know, the more different that the air is from material that, that it's actually embedded in. Air is the lowest dielectric constant that we know of other than air in a vacuum, right? But air in our actual human space is, you know, the lowest dielectric constant. So it should contrast to basically any material that, that your wave is going through and it should cause a reflection. Great. All right. Last question is, what new markets or sectors do you see GPR making inroads to? I guess I'm going to handle this kind of within civil engineering first, I guess. Within civil engineering specifically, I think that concrete scanning is going to continue to grow exponentially as an application or series of applications for ground penetrating radar. And I think the reason is that in addition to just locating the embedded rebar conduits and post-tension cables and things like that, it's starting to, we're starting to really understand. And some engineers are doing this already and they're doing great jobs, structural engineers, but really starting to use it for evaluating corrosion, evaluating rebar diameter, evaluating voids, things that have become more complex, that's where it's moving. And the more that we're able to do those kinds of things, the more it's going to be used over and over and over again on structural engineering and civil engineering projects. I think concrete scanning is, even now, it blows my mind that people don't use GPR to scan before they do even a basic stuff, even before they do core or a drill or saw through concrete. People don't use it still. I mean, it, I'm floored when that happens. And that happens regularly. Does it happen as often as it did five years ago? Of course not. But it still happens. I still think that there's a lot of way to go where concrete scanning is definitely in some ways a good frontier in civil engineering and structural engineering that's going to get used more and more for basic stuff, basic projects, locating projects, but it's also going to get used more and more understanding more about what's going on within the concrete. And this is also in addition to bridge decks. It's also in addition to roadway work. It's going to be used more and more and more under those circumstances. Now, in non-civil engineering, there's a whole host of different ways that it's being used. Things that are really super interesting. I'm not going to go into it deeply, but GPR is used in agriculture. GPR is used in environmental. GPR is used in archaeology. GPR is used in crime scene investigations. GPR is used in so many different, in forestry. GPR is used to evaluate disease inside of a tree because they use the same concrete scan. It's not a concrete scanner. It's a GPR. But the same unit that's used to concrete scan is used going up the side of a tree trunk to evaluate whether or not there is disease inside the tree. Why? Because it's going to be softer tissue, softer wood, or deteriorated wood, and that's going to change the physical properties. And you can evaluate diseases inside of a tree. So it's wild to I me. Mean, people come out with all sorts of new applications, which is what gets me so excited about GPR, is that there's so many different uses that we don't even know about already that you can use this for that will continue to come out 
people, as long as they're creative, they experiment, they have an open mind, you can use it for all sorts of different things. And that's why I'm so charged and pumped up about kind of where my path has, has gone, helping people kind of become better at using this technology, because a lot of them use it for a limited set of applications, but there's so much more that they could use it for. Daniel, it certainly sounds like you're excited about it, which I think is a good thing. Obviously, you want to be passionate about what you're working on. And I just want to just say thank you for joining me today here on the Civil Engineering Podcast. And I'm assuming that the best place for our listeners to connect with you is at the website, learngpr.com, correct? Correct. And you can connect with us. I mean, we're on basically almost every single social platform at LearnGPR. Like we're on LinkedIn, LearnGPR, YouTube, LearnGPR, Facebook, LearnGPR, Twitter, LearnGPR, Instagram, LearnGPR. It's all the same. And so we respond to people as regularly as we possibly can from their questions and things like that if you connect with us on any of those. So absolutely go and follow us on, on those platforms. We appreciate any support that you can give us. My goal is to try to teach as many people as I possibly can how to use this technology as effectively as possible. And so follow us on those platforms, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and definitely come to learngpr.com and sign up for our trainings over there for our blog so you can get notified every week of our new training. All right. And remember, you can find the show notes for this episode at civilengineeringpodcast.com. Look for episode number 45, or you can go to our mother website at engineeringcareercoach.com forward slash GPR. That's lowercase GPR. You'll find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, as well as links to any resources or websites that may have been mentioned during the episode. You can also leave questions in the comments section or visit the Ask Us tab on the website. We do monitor all comments and will respond if you leave us one. Until next time, I wish you the best in all of your civil engineering career endeavors. Thank you for listening to the Civil Engineering Podcast. Be sure to visit civilengineeringpodcast.com where you can listen to past episodes and also submit your project to be featured on the show. We also invite you to visit our main website at engineeringcareercoach.com and download a free three-part video series created specifically for engineers to help you best utilize LinkedIn for networking, improve your communication and speaking skills, and also help to develop your leadership abilities. Now is the time to engineer your own success.